Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Hello, this is Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. I am pleased to welcome you to this American Cinematographer podcast. Today I'll be talking with cinematographer Oliver Stapleton, BSC, about his work on Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Co-written and produced by genre movie icon Guillermo del Toro, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark tells the story of Alex and Ken, a couple played by Guy Pearce and Katie Holmes, who move into a gothic mansion known as Blackwood Manor. Alex's young daughter Sally, played by Bailey Madison, joins them at the estate, and it's a rough adjustment for all since Sally doesn't really take to her new surroundings or her new mother figure. Warming up to her dad's new girlfriend turns out to be the least of Sally's problems, however, as she soon learns that the mansion has other non-human tenants dwelling in the basement, and because she's just a kid with a history of emotional problems, she can't get the adults to believe her. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is a remake of the classic 1973 TV movie, which has long held a place in horror fans' hearts. And while the original has its charms, this is that rare remake that retains the spirit of its source while improving on it in nearly every way. Spooky in a traditional sense, yet innovative in terms of its design and special effects, the film combines the best of classic horror with contemporary techniques to tell a story that's both creature feature and psychological character study. I am very pleased to have director of photography Oliver Stapleton here to talk about the picture. Oliver, you're known for working with directors like Stephen Frears and Vlasa Hallstrom and Michael Hoffman all of whom have collaborated with you multiple times, and most of those collaborations have been straight-ahead adult dramas. What led you into the arena of horror for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark? How did you uh, get the job? Well, what led me to the arena and how I got the job are actually two different things, because uh, what led me to the arena was I've always been interested in this kind of movie. I've always wanted to shoot one, but 90% of them are not the kind of horror movies I want to shoot because they kind of rely on terrorizing 16-year-olds with men stalking around the outside of buildings. And I've never found that very interesting or entertaining. But I always loved traditional horror, like Frankenstein Armand. Of course, I'm a massive fan of Guillermo's. I'd never met him. So when I got this call, which was via um, Mark Johnson, he originally tried to get me for Narnia for the first one. And I'd just finished some other film and didn't feel like leaving home at that moment. I'd sort of literally landed and it was like, leave tomorrow. And I thought, no, I can't do that. So then it was a few years later that Mark contacted me about this film. And it literally was a phone call in England. Can you get on a plane, come to Los Angeles, meet the director? So I thought, well, that's going to be a long journey. <laughs> so I actually did fly in, meet and flew out the same night. Had a like two hour meeting with Mark and Troy. Guillermo wasn't at that meeting. And uh, next day they said, yeah, would you want the job? And that was it. So the next time I met with them was in Melbourne where we shot the film. And at that point when you first met them, had you read the script? Oh, yeah, what of course. Was your, yeah. What was your initial reaction to it? Fantastic. I loved the script. You know, I wouldn't have gotten a plane if I didn't like the script. So um, Guillermo told me later that he'd had it in the drawer for seven or eight years or maybe even longer and uh, had tried to make it many times with him directing it. And then, of course... The curse of when finance finally appears happened to be when he was on The Hobbit, so he would dearly love to have directed it himself, but in the end, it did wind up as a kind of curious and bizarre co-directing job, in a sense, between Guillermo and Troy. 
And uh, something that initially felt to me like it might be difficult for me as a cinematographer to balance these two talents together actually turned out to be really collaborative, really interesting. And a, a whole lot of other layers were added when Guillermo was more present on the set, which he wasn't at the beginning, but he was towards the middle and end. And so that all worked out really well. And that was really due to his extraordinary personality and also Troy's resilience as a first-timer in dealing with you know a lot of complex factors at work. Right. Well, I wanted to ask about your relationship with Troy Nixie because I was shocked after watching the film that to find that it was his first feature, you know, mm. because it's a very assured debut. But evidently he comes from a sort of visual arts background. What were your initial conversations with him like about the film and how did you guys well, work together? You know, I was reluctant as I always am to work with first time directors. I have done that a number of times that doesn't always work out so well. Studios like to employ people like me for first-time directors because it makes them feel good. <laughs> it makes them think they might get the day's work, whatever happens in the directing department. And it's not a job I generally relish because I love to work with kind of equals, with colleagues, with people who inspire me as opposed to people I'm teaching. With Troy, his Latchkey's Lament was such an interesting piece, but of course what I didn't know that I found later on is of course that piece A doesn't really have any actors in it and B, 15 minutes long, took several years to make and came from the mind of an animator. But what was interesting in prep about the first four or five weeks that I met and worked with Troy in Melbourne in pre-production was he had several really defining visual ideas for the movie. It was like Ridley Scott, smoke, beams of light, that form of photography was really what he wanted. And um, that happened to fit very nicely with what I was considering doing anyway. But that all started off very well and we did a number of tests in pre-production involving the stained glass windows. I had the designer deliver a stained glass window into a black studio and that's all we had was that window and a kid. And we played with a lot of different lighting combinations, kinds of color, density, type of smoke, you know, all that stuff. And then I showed that test to Troy and said, okay, we could do this or we could do this, we could do this. And again, he had very definite opinions about, oh, that's the one I like, and yes, this, and yes, that. So shooting on film was immensely useful for that because of highlight control, which is very difficult in digital. So there's a big challenge with, sort of put very simply, if you want to do beams at night through a window, in order to get the beam, the light's got to be pretty strong. But when you make a strong light through a stained glass window, it blows all the color out of the window. So if you make the light dim enough to see the color in the window, you won't get the beam of light. So that was the testing we did. And in the end, we found a particular Fuji stock that had enormous and incredible highlight retention. So we were able in the DI to basically keep our beam, keep the atmosphere on the set, and then isolate the window and crush it right down to the point that you'd actually see the color and see the shape of the window. Now, even today's extremely popular and fancy digital cameras will not deal with that situation. They'll see in the dark very well, in the shadow, but there's still a point where it just clips to white. And the colorist who did the film down in Melbourne, he kept shaking his head, <laughs> just saying, thank God this is on film, because we couldn't have achieved that look. And it's interesting right now, in this particular point in history where everything is swinging so heavily into digital, uh, for good reason, in some ways, the technology's you know, definitely grown up. But there still are factors involved that I think all cinematographers approaching any given project 
would want to have the option of film still visible. And I just hope in the next five, 10 years that doesn't go away because it's one of the tools in our arsenal of how to make things look. And it's a, you know, the one that's been around a long time, the one that is great for archive. A film like this, you know, any film I shoot, and I've shot all my films on film, I'm always happy that long after I'm dead and gone, the film will exist on film because any technology of the future can then just take that and turn it into today's 7D or hologram or whatever the hell they want to do in 50 years from now. Whereas digital-derived cinema has uh, some really severe and, and intractable problems going into the future about archive, which most people are just going, uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. And it won't be fine because the formats will change. And who's going to spend $100,000 a year to reformat and rechange all your archive material, which is what it costs? So, there's, you know, there's a serious problem facing the cinema industry that's not being addressed about archive. And so, you know, whilst I can see, yes, maybe next week, maybe next year, I'll shoot a digital film, one of the things I will really hope is that that is transferred to negative before release, which will happen, of course, as long as we have actual prints in the cinema and that at least becomes an archive of the cut film even though you haven't got the rushes on archive but um that's probably another issue that <laughs> you don't want to talk about no that's that's great um you know the, the stained glass window stuff that you mentioned actually leads me to another question i had about the uh production design of the film and how closely you worked with production designer Roger Ford, because the house is almost, you know, it's another character yes. in the movie. And the way you use light shining through the windows and all of that stuff, it's, uh, you know, it's very precise. And I was wondering how much of that was built and designed? Were you shooting on an actual location or was the house built for the movie? And um, The exterior of the house was a facade on top of an existing house. So those grounds outside, you know, they drive up in the car. Well, I mean, a particular shot for those who study these things to look at is basically when she gets out of the car and they all walk in the house and it's one shot. That's actually two shots because the interior of the house is entirely built. So in the exterior house, what we had was a matching porch, which was about eight, 10 feet deep. And then at the end of the porch was a small green screen. So basically what happened is as the camera turned and we steady cammed into that green screen, then we repeated the move in the set. And so it, that was a very important thing for the designer and Troy and myself, you know, because we knew we had an interior disconnected from the exterior. To sell the audience on the connection, what you always have to do is do a shot like that, where you make a completely naturalistic shot, you go into a house, and then you've done it, because then you can spend a few weeks in the set. And everyone in their mind has kind of made that connection. It's a real connection, it's a continuous shot. And that shot wasn't that hard to achieve, in fact, once we figured out how to do it. There was an interesting lighting choice we made there, which, again, I would credit Troy for his unnaturalistic sense of how things should be in, in pushing me, who basically deals with naturalism most of my time. Um, but it was dull outside, the weather, when we shot that. But we made a decision, and, and it was a good decision, that inside it should be sunny. So there's a curious thing that most people won't really pick up on because it's not what happens when you watch a movie, but they come from this dull exterior and they walk through this door and, and this interior is 
you don't think, oh, it's sunny in there, it was dull outside. What you think is, whoa, this is a really bizarre place. Right. <laughs> and part of why it's bizarre is because we made a deliberate mismatch so that there was a kind of almost orchestral, almost fantastical appearance to that first shot as you come through the door and there's the big window and the beams of light and all that. If we'd been thinking more logically, we would have thought, oh, we can't put sun through that window because it wouldn't match the outside. But that's what's lovely about this kind of genre. It's all about emotional impact. And so what works for the image, if it's carrying the story, of course, all of us who watch films intensely will just follow the story. And unless something happens to the texture or the lighting or the composition of a shot that is so bizarre, I mean, that's one of the problems with 3D, actually. But that that's the sort of thing that will tend to throw you off and you'll suddenly become unimmersed in the picture and you'll go, oh, I'm just watching some pictures. And um, my aim throughout my working life has been for the pictures to go away. You know, the pictures shouldn't exist in the audience's mind. The pictures I try to make are the ones where the audience doesn't see pictures, it just sees story, because that's the immersive experience. And to me, 2D is 3D. I mean, 2D, when it's great, it's you're within the screen. You're no longer in the cinema, you're not listening to the popcorn, you're just staring into this hyperspace, if you like. So that's the kind of photography I like to do, is when things are invisible, if you like. So you can be bold and brave and big, but if you get so big that everyone goes, wow, what a great shot, to me that's sort of a sign of failure in, in my world. I'm, I'm not saying there isn't a, a type of extravagance in cinematography that's legitimate, which I think there is, and I'm a great admirer of other cinematographers who do that kind of work. I just know for me that's, you know, I'm not the guy who bangs a loud drum and plays the electric guitar. I'm much more kind of a classicist in terms of visual style. Well, that leads me to something that I really liked about the film, which is that it kind of went against the trend of what's become the prevalent style in contemporary horror and haunted house movies, which is this sort of faux documentary style and things like the Paranormal Activity films and Last Exorcism. This movie has very elegant camera movements and very precise compositions, and I was wondering what kind of philosophy guided your and Nixie's more classical approach to the material. Was that something that you both agreed on right away early on? Yeah, I think so. You know, I like to go into initial discussions with a new director I'm working with, with kind of the full lexicon of questions. I'll just go and go, well, what about handheld? Or, you know, what do you think about Canon 5Ds? You know, what about putting little wide-angle lenses in the corner and shooting up at the ceiling and having people going over the, you know, over the lens? And it was, thank God, because, you know, that isn't my style and I'm not too interested in that stuff. Although, again, when I see it and it's well done, I admire it. You know, I think, oh, that's good. You know, they've shot it on no money with a, a 5D and done something interesting and they've cut it well. And I, I'm a fan of that stuff. And I could see myself in a particular situation with a particular director going, oh, yeah, let's do that. That would be exciting. But with Troy, no, he curiously for someone on his first movie, you know, in his 30s, he immediately was much more interested in classical, what you might call old-fashioned, real, proper storytelling photography. Uh, he, he would express to me some things in a very curious way, which sometimes I couldn't understand. He'd say things like, oh, we should shoot this all low. And then I'd say, why? <laughs> and he'd say, oh, because low angles are really cool. And I'd go, yeah, they are. And then that would sort of set off some thinking, you know. So occasionally 
I would come up with an idea, like all relationships with the directors, you know, the, to me, it's not a who wins situation with the director, it's what's best for the movie. And I always maintain the notion that who cares what names are on a movie? Ten years from now, who's going to know these names anyway? The aim is to make the best shot for that scene, to make the best sequence, the best montage, so every morning you're coming up with, even if it's a storyboard or not a storyboard, but you, you're trying to find what expresses that scene the best. And in the dialogue with the director, a director with opinions and strong ideas about, oh, let's shoot from here, here and here, that's great for me, but it, it's a dialogue and hopefully not adversarial. And I've been, I mean, unbelievably fortunate in my entire career that I've, I mean, I can't have had more than a few days of what I would call truly horrific disagreement <laughs> about how to shoot something because I think I'm very careful about who I work with for a start. And then I am a very much a collaborative kind of cinematographer. I'm not a standalone look at me, look at my work kind of guy. And the relationship with Troy was the dynamic between us, uh, coming from very, very different sensibilities in so many ways, but it was a very good dynamic. And when Guillermo kind of joined us in the last half, when some of his commitments on The Hobbit were less, this was before he left The Hobbit. And that was good too, because he added a whole other flavor of collaboration into the mix. In fact, Guillermo said to me some months after we'd finished, I think when I was grading the film, he said, you know, it's the, the most extraordinary thing about this film is if I'd made it, he said it would be a completely different movie, but not necessarily a better one. So he acknowledged the fact that whatever happened in the mix of creativity between all the people from the designer, Troy, myself, involved, whatever that mix was, it was a good mix. And it came up with a movie that even surprised him and not a movie he would have made, but a movie he's very happy to present. So it was a good result. The movie, as you say, is in some ways, it's kind of old fashioned in the best sense. And I was wondering if you guys had any visual references, if there were other films you talked about or looked at or paintings or anything like that to influence. The yeah, movie. as I say, I mean, films like Alien, pretty much any of the early Ridley Scott films were ones that Troy was very keen on. Some of the you know, the older sort of black and white horror films, the early Ridley Scott, um, because the visual style of those was very much the kind of black shadows, the beams through the windows. We didn't really do a lot of dripping. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you know how in horror movies there's always something that drips somewhere. Right. <laughs> that was something we didn't do a lot of. But I think what for me happens on the reference for film is that you talk stuff in prep, and some directors like to talk reference from painting, some from film. But in the end, the script and design and the day takes over. And so you've done that kind of tapestry of homework that then goes into the back of your mind. But the real visual style of the film, in a way, you don't really find it until you're actually shooting it, I don't think. And sometimes it takes a few weeks, actually. So right now, we're in week eight of a film. And sometimes Anne Fletcher and I look at each other and go, so have we found the style? <laughs> you kind of go, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but it's, you're not rubber stamping a style on the movie. And I love that. I actually hate borrowing. I did six or seven years of pop videos. And of course, that's the great borrowing fraternity, you know, and there's some directors where you think, oh my God, this guy's a genius. This is brilliant. And then two years later, somebody's suing him for simply pulling everything out of a fashion magazine 
or pulling everything out of an art gallery and just applying it to his work. That is so foreign to me. It's foreign in every sense. And I could only really name within my history one massive set of influences, but they're so far away from cinema in a way. But that would be the, the black and white photography of the 30s and 40s from sort of Edward Weston and Dorothea Lange. You know, that whole era of photography. Um, I loved Edward Weston's day books as a portrait of an artist and how to be if you are an artist, how to live, you know, how to conduct your life. And I think, I think cinematographers' personalities and their, um, what they bring to the table, I mean, people so misunderstand what the job involves because you're bringing so much more than a visual style. You're actually bringing an entire kind of staging personality. You're dealing with immense politics sometimes where relationships between people can get very fraught and the one person is right there, you know, at the cutting edges of the cinematographer. So that aspect of cinematography, the management, if you like, I mean, I, I was thinking the bigger the film, the more it's management and the less it's art in terms of cinematography. With the smaller the film, the more chance you have to concentrate on your real job to make images and make them right and not have to deal with a lot of stuff on top of that. And there's always a ratio on any movie, you know, they use this phrase above the line and below the line. Well, in a sense, the cinematographer's on the line. You're just right there in the middle. You're not an above the line person. You're not just crew. You're sort of management and you're sort of an artist slash craftsman. But above all, you're a collaborator with the director. And so that it's a marriage between the two of you for the duration. And um, that might be for one movie or it might be for 10 years, you know, who knows. But uh, that relationship on set is the key relationship. And then, of course, a director has all these other key relationships that exist in prep and exist in post. But for us, you know, we turn up at the centre of the party, if you like, and do our thing and go away. And then you can't cry over what's not used. You can't be upset about scripts in the end because you can say your piece in prep about Oh, I don't like this much, or why have you got that scene, or oh, this ending's terrible. But in the end, that's not your job. And one of the things that Stephen Creer's taught me was to do your job. Whatever shit's going down in any situation, the cinematographer's a cinematographer. And so when I remember one job I started, and people kept asking me about transportation. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. I, I was like in week one, and, and people kept coming up to me and saying, do you know where the van's going to wherever? <laughs> And I had to make a sort of announcement <laughs> the week I kind of said, by the way, I don't deal with transportation. <laughs> it's just an odd thing that sometimes you can, you know, you're apparently in a position where you know everything because you're kind of, in a sense, the key person who's actually on set. Whereas a lot of directors, some don't, like Anne is always there, which is great, but a lot of directors sort of drift off in between setups. And so you're the man running the show along with the AD but you have to keep your world, you can't let the edges feather out into all the other stuff that's going down. So I think that, as I say, it's part of a personality that you develop as a cinematographer to understand the boundaries of your job and what you're giving to the show. And it's, everything's always intimately connected, but in order not to kind of run out and get tired and get exhausted, their boundaries. It's about keeping boundaries and going, oh, by the way, no, that's not my job. Go and ask that guy in the story sort of thing. So. Well, one thing that I think 
cinematographers do have to deal with that isn't talked about all that much is the relationship between the cinematographer and the actors. And one thing I was thinking on this film was you've got, for the most part, the movie is being carried by a child actress in a role that's very emotionally demanding and also technically demanding because there's a lot of effects work and things like that. And I was wondering what kind of challenges were involved with that, with dealing with that. Well, some mentionable and some unmentionable, (laughs) but um, I mean, the great trick for me with the children, you know, a lot of people around children, they want to be liked as an adult because maybe they don't have children. So when a child actor is on set, again, it sounds a bit boring, but for me, it's sort of about boundaries. It's very, very important, and I will sometimes speak to crew, but very rarely, because film crews are amazing, you know, camera departments, lighting people, grips. I mean, these people are extraordinary. They get no real credit or, you know, they don't do podcasts, but they are extraordinary people, and they understand about not befriending the child and making a big deal, because with 100-plus people on a crew, if every member of the crew was to form a personal, unique, and fabulous relationship with the child. I mean, they'd never arrive on set in the morning. And I've done this with Lasse, who's, you know, we've worked with a number of children. And the great thing is to make them feel comfortable. So, of course, you're always polite, civil, and warm, but without crossing the boundary into becoming a friend. You can't do that because then it gets complicated. Now, with a director and a child, and this is the job of cinematography, Director and a child, director and an actor, a lot of whom can be difficult or petulant or not on this movie, they weren't, they were all great, but um, if those relationships with the director, that's the primary relationship. When the director walks in the room, you want that child to immediately go to the director and respond to the director and say, well, do you want me to do this or should I, I don't know what I'm doing, should I fall down on the floor here, whatever that question is. If another member of the crew, whether it's an operator, the cinematographer, whatever, continuously gets involved with all the director's world, that would seriously upset a shoot and things would go terribly awry because it would undermine the director and then the child would be responding to that other person at the end of the take. they go, oh, how was that? So that's just an unwritten rule, really. It's not something you even think about. But for me, that yes, it's very important that the atmosphere on set Bailey, as far as I could tell, she was incredibly comfortable on the set. And Troy made that happen. One of her parents was usually around. She's a wonderful little girl and a terrific actress. And so she was trouble-free, really, from my perspective, professionally, on the set. Whether or not stuff happened behind the scenes, in a sense, isn't my business, and I can't even remember. Probably did. Most movies, it usually does. But she was... Terrific to work with on set and the relationships between us all. Katie was another thing, you know, completely. And um, every actor has their, you know, their foibles, their ways of being on any movie. And it's a boundary thing. It's like you know when it's too much information. Actually, Stephen Frears, in many ways, I think, I learned so many things from him. And one of the things I learned from him was about boundaries. If anybody badmouths anyone on the Stephen Freer set, even just casually said something, he'd go, shh, that was all he ever said. And what it meant was, this is not a village gossip deal. We don't poke our head out the window and talk about, you know, who's screwing who. So all the 10 years I worked with him, there was immense discipline about 
not doing that stuff. And if I hear it on the set, I now do the same thing. I'll just say, that's not our job, or I don't want to talk about that. So I like that. So, yeah, those relationships with children, I think, are set on Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, especially with the scary stuff. I mean, it's funny with scary stuff, because I haven't seen the film yet. I'm going to see it tomorrow. But uh, I'm sure it's scary. But Bailey was never scared. That's the wonderful thing about it. She was acting scared, but it's not like we made her scared. She's just a good actress. <laughs> so that was, yeah. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions about working with the visual effects, because I'm assuming that the creatures in the movie were computer-generated, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm wondering, how early do you have to commit to certain camera movements and compositions in order to accommodate the effects? Pretty early. Um, the first movie I did with extensive effects was Water Horse in New Zealand, which is a, a really nice kids' movie. And our central character, the horse, was a tennis ball on a pole. And that took a little bit of getting used to, but I worked with Joe Letary and all those guys down there in New Zealand who did the rings and all that. So I, I started at the top with them. They were so phenomenal. It was a rapid learning curve for me. Their previous stuff and their animated previews were so good and so amazing, and we'd bring them on set so you knew, oh, the composition's like this, and that is very important. And it's the same in this film. Everything involving creatures was storyboarded or previews because you really do have to do that, otherwise you can't compose the shots properly. And your, um, as one operator once said to me, he got fed up with people yelling at him, chip up for the head. You know, because it was a head of some creature up there, and he'd have this awful composition with the head sort of the actor cut off at the bottom of the frame, and he'd be staring at the monitor going, oh, this looks terrible. But, you know, then they'd draw in the creature looming down or whatever it was, and, of course, it, it was fine. So previs, yeah, storyboarding with anything to do with effects, you can't make that up as you go along. You've got to pre-visualise it and know what you're doing, otherwise you won't have the right shot or lighting or anything else. We would do 3D lighting with creatures. So, you know, we had maquettes of creatures. So from a lighting point of view, you'd do a reference frame at the end of a shot where you'd bring the little maquette in and stand it there. And then as the CGI guys, they've got a real 3D lit image that they can then translate into their world and so the lighting will integrate. And that's one of the most important jobs, really, is to discuss all that with special effects and with CGI people because you're laying down the groundwork when you do the photography and if they start to do things that don't fit the frame it won't feel integrated so that's just really a discussion thing between us all and doing some homework and doing some reference stuff which I did in prep and saying if this creature is lit like this it looks so much better than if it's lit like this and they translate that into their world. Every movie you have to decide about night, for instance. What color is night? Is it like really blue? Is it like blue-purple, blue-green? I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of night. Maybe it's not blue at all. So you make all those decisions in prep so that everyone's on the same page. On Water Horse, in fact, I had a good system because there was a lot more involved than there was in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, where they would send me their temps over in England on a, a match system to what theirs was. And then I was able to go into Photoshop and make notes about, well, I think this moonlight's the wrong color, or why don't you bring it around here a bit more? That was really good. On this film, because it's Guillermo, he did all that, because he's brilliant at all that, and so I wasn't involved with that element of it at all, which was fine. 
I mean, it would have been fun for me, but I realized because he was so hands-on with it, it was pointless, really. And he has an extraordinary eye for grading. He came in when I'd finished climbing the film, and um, I, <laughs> anything that was slightly off, he go, oh, maybe that should be a bit, you know, and I go, oh, shit, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not all directors have that kind of eye where they really... But that's his forte, isn't it? In integrating Hellboy in these movies, his integration of the bad guys when they're CGI with the main characters is supreme. It's really good. Well, talking about the uh, the grading, I did want to ask you a little bit about the the palette of the film because one thing that struck me was the way you use kind of warmer colors for the interiors and cooler colors for the exteriors, and I was right. wondering what went into that decision. Um, I think that's fairly standard, isn't it, in some ways. I mean, the you've got interior lighting or candles. I don't know whether... Did we have candles? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did here and there. So that that's always a beautiful combination. And, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Basically, kind of a cool exterior, warmer interior is almost a given. And if you throw that away and go, oh, let's do it around the other way or something, you're just throwing away one of the great visual tools I think for me, the title, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, was in my brain every day, lighting. It's scary to do this kind of lighting because it's really dark. Yeah. Now, some guys go, oh, yeah, we'll do that afterwards. So they play safe. You know, they light it sort of normal and then rely on crushing the hell out of it afterwards. I'm not that kind of person. I like to make it how I want it to be, and I don't want some guy two years down the line sitting in an edit suite you know, lightening it up. So I make a negative where you can't do that. So there's nothing on it to lighten up. So that uh, whole feel of inky black and um, the contrast and all that, that wasn't post. It was shot very deliberately in that way to be how we wanted the film to look and not how some colorist, you know, sometime in the future might decide to put it on TV or something. For me, that's the way to go with a film. You've got to be bold as a cinematographer. Otherwise, you might as well get someone else to do it, you know, if you're just going to light it normal and then crush it all down afterwards. People with very acute eyes know that. You know, colorists who sit in these DI suites, they know every single thing about what's processed afterwards and what's real from the original photography. They see it straight away. And I think the public watching the movie, they might not put their finger on why, but you sense that stuff. I mean, there were points where... Katie was walking down the staircase just before they took her away, where I think the screen went actually completely black. I don't know whether that's still in the movie or not. But I remember Guillermo saw the rushes the next day and he looked at me and he went, oh, that's bold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether there was an element of criticism, but I just looked at him and I went, don't be afraid of the dark. <laughs> and he kind of went, hmm. <laughs> there, you know, when dark was dark, it was dark. And uh, as a cinematographer, it's quite scary, that stuff. You know, with film, you're not seeing it on the day like digital. It's not like you're just getting a committee to sign off and saying, is that dark okay? You know, and the producer goes, oh, yeah, I think so. And some other guy walking past goes, no, I think it's a bit bright. You know, <laughs> it's like film is the great secret. As a cinematographer shooting on film, you're in like the shaman world. You're relying on the trust of all your collaborators to get it right. You have to get it right. No one else can, you know, they look at this shitty little monitor and go, oh, is it going to look like that? And you say no, and that's kind of end of discussion. With HD, there's always black tents all over the place, and of course, you know, it's like, do not come in on the cinematographer's tent 
and then there's a director tent and you know all this stuff and i just hate all that i mean it, when i when i start working on digital which i'm sure i will i will be determined to create what i would call a film-like environment on the set not a post-production environment because one of the things that's happening now is that Cinematographers are getting all obsessed with post-production tools on set and there are various companies designing, you know, all this workflow stuff and all this on-set grading. So after your 12 to 14 hour day, you're supposed to go off to your hotel room and spend four hours grading the movie. That's not what you should be doing as far as I'm concerned. What you should be doing is sleeping or going to the bar, whatever turns you on. So that the next day, you're fresh, ready and to go. Post-production grading Final grading, to me, is all post. It's not to be done on set. I think it's a huge waste of time, and it shouldn't happen. And so the picture on set, for me, way better if it's a rough approximation. I mean, I've dealt with some fairly pesky actresses in my time, and the thought that they would come around and actually look at what it really is going to be and start talking about it, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, really, seriously terrifying. <laughs> and as a time waster on set, because, you know, they're delightful, these girls, but it's all about looking good for them, and I understand why. That's part of the game. If they come by and look at this giant HD monitor with your digital list and your filters and all the rest of it, and you're on set grader, you know, pounding everything away, trying to get rid of some blemishes <laughs> and do this and do that, and they see it and go, well, that's no good. I want it to look like that. Immediately, you've spent another $100,000 because you've waited three hours while you try and sort it out. With film, the joy of the non-monitor situation or the sort of grainy black and white style monitor is that that whole discussion is in post. It just goes away. So the cinematographer can do their job and everyone can focus on the drama, on the shots, on the montage, focus on making the movie. This notion of timing the film while you're making the film boring like i don't want that in my life i want to just work with the actors and the director for the drama and then the photography on set needs to be almost like this humming engine that you don't notice not this great technical maelstrom of cables and drives and all this stuff we've introduced for the so-called new modern great world it's just made the task of technology interfering with the business of making a movie so much harder. So that's partly why I'm coming to the party as late as I possibly can, partly because I want to be the last guy rolling film when it finally stops, but also because when I do go digital, I want to have the quietest technology, not all the noisy experimental, oh, is this a red camera, a green camera, a purple camera? Have they just made this camera next door, you know, with some garage that somebody's produced it and gone, this is, this is a $100 million film, why don't we use this thing that nobody's ever used before? <laughs> I mean, bonkers. You know, in 25 years of putting film through a camera, I think I've lost one shot. On the proposal, we lost a shot that couldn't be used in the film because of a fault and we couldn't reuse it. All the stories I hear with digital is you lose a shot a day. Well, that's unacceptable to me. That's not professional equipment. That's beta testing at a very expensive level. And um, I don't want to saddle a director with technology that gets in the way and doesn't work and breaks down. I think it's unfair. I think it's unfair on the actors. So you won't catch me on a set with a prototype. You might catch me on a set with an Alexa or you know, Sony camera or something that's got decent 
provenance and it works and it's not going to break down and you won't have to reshoot. I mean, just this year I heard a story about a 3D film and they lost stuff almost every day. They just lost it. And the tech would come and go, oh yeah, um, yeah, that flash drive's corrupted. Um, yeah, we better shoot that again tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's $200,000 a day. I think it's crazy. I really do. I think we're in the grip of madness at the moment, technologically. And, and I would urge every cinematographer, be responsible when you take your digital camera out from the store. Don't take the producer's choice. Get the choice of the one that works for your movie and make sure if you think it's a bit dodgy, get several. <laughs> so that when one breaks down, at least you can bring the other one in five minutes. If you have a delay on a modern film, with maybe, you know, any budget attached, but if you have a delay for technical reasons, it's phenomenal amounts of money. And when a producer's going, oh, well, we can only afford five grand a week for the cameras or 10 grand or whatever it is, and you go, oh, well, okay, yeah, we won't get this other camera because it's a bit more expensive. One hour delay in production, you've wiped out that entire saving just right there. And God knows if you reshoot something because of a technical problem, that 10 times. So the responsibility as a cinematographer is to advise, cajole, put pressure on production and say, look, this is actually my job to understand cameras. You might think just because you went and bought a 5D, you know all about photography. But actually, I know about photography, and I know the right tool for this job, and it's this. Let's go look at that. We'll look at this. How is this budgeted? You know, what's reliable? And look at the record of the camera you're using. What is the record of it? Is it good? Does it work? <laughs> you know, very, very important. I can't understand what's going on at the moment with all these people running around with prototypes on $100 million films. I think it's bizarre, personally, really bizarre. <laughs> but, you know, that's life. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, it's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for coming sure. and talking with me about the film. This has been Jim Hemphill and Oliver Stapleton, BSC, talking about Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.